I'd love it if you could just open up the Bible in front of you to um, Hebrews chapter 10. You'll find, we're going to read from verse 19, which is on page 1753, page 1753. So, it's towards the end of the Bible there. And uh, I'll, read, I'll read you the passage and then explain what we're doing for the next few months, actually. So. So where it says the full assurance of faith, we're going to pick it up from there. Verse 19, Hebrews 10, 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest or great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. We're starting something new today for a few months, take us towards probably around September, where we're going to start a series called The Anatomy of Faith. I want you just to consider for a second, when you think about what is the heart of Christianity, what makes Christianity unique as a belief system, and there's lots of ways you can approach that, angles that you can look at, but one of the answers you can give to it is that the whole thing rests on faith in your heart as a, as a believer. We understand that to be a Christian is someone who exercises faith in God, recognizes that he is trustworthy, and to put it in other language, just essentially is this, believes God, believes what he says about himself, believes what he reveals about himself in the Bible, believes that his way is right. And so to be a Christian is essentially just that, it's to have faith, it's to believe God. But when you come into the Christian life, one of the things you, you quickly realize is that there's no part of your, of your experience of Christianity, and in fact, the entirety of your life that isn't touched by the kind of faith that you have. So right the way through from the kind of experiential end of your, your walk with God, you know, your day-to-day experience of his presence and love in your life, all the way through to just the concrete daily decisions you make in life, where you go, what you're doing with your time, maybe the whole direction of your life, what you do with your resources, your finances, your relationships, all these decisions, none of them is outside of the realm of your faith in God. Everything is touched by whether you believe God or not. And so... One of the things I've also noticed is that some Christians have tremendous amounts of faith in one area of their life and none in another. So, for example, you might be a Christian who believes God entirely when it comes to trusting him for your finances. And the obvious fruit of that is that you're a generous person. You believe that you know, as you give, so you'll receive and that God will bless you and that you're not afraid that you'll ever lack because you have faith in God. You trust him sincerely in that part of your life. But maybe in another part of your life, perhaps in some area of temptation, you see this kind of deficit where you think, okay, God said that I need to trust him and recognize that he's all satisfying, but actually I just want to run after this thing. And your life is a kind of contradiction. There's faith in some areas, there's not faith in other areas. 
Or maybe you're prayerless. You find that you find it really difficult to pray believing prayers. But no problem to, to give away lots of your, your money for the kingdom and for what God's doing in the earth. So I noticed this kind of like contradiction in, in my heart, and I think it's probably true. I think all of us would identify with that if we, you know, call ourselves Christians, that there's this kind of weird, this weird sort of disjunction between different parts of our lives. And this is why I want us to look at this section of the book of Hebrews. The whole book is about faith, essentially, but he brings it to this amazing focus in chapter 10, but particularly chapter 11. What he does is he starts to paint the picture of different ways that we can look at faith, different characters and the way that they lived lives of faith. And what it does for us is it gives us a kind of insight into, okay, if I want to have faith in this part of my life, here's someone who's demonstrated for me what faith looks like in that part of your life or in the other part or whatever. And it begins to help us to break through because, as I've said to you before, I think we're, as creatures, we're imitative by nature. Most of what we learn, we learn through imitation. We see other people sort of going before us in certain ways, and we copy, we walk in their footsteps. So when you see examples of faith, it helps you to kind of grow in that area of faith in your life. So trusting God for that specific thing. So just an example here. You know when um, Roger Bannister, he was one famous... British runner, he ran in 1954, there was a record that had never been broken, which was to run a mile in less than four minutes. He's famous for it because it, with not that much training, he actually broke the mile. And as they were announcing this time, the announcer just said three minutes and, and the crowd just erupted in cheers. And it was three minutes, 59.4 seconds. He'd broken it by 0.6 seconds, but that was it, it was enough. Now, this is a record that had stood for all time. No one had done it, to anyone's knowledge. And then only 46 days later, someone else beat his record. It's a bit annoying to only hold a world record for 46 days, but it shows you it was a kind of imitation thing that if someone can sort of break through in that area, it's much easier to walk in their footsteps behind them. It's like a psychological barrier has been smashed. And you see this also in the Christian life when you see examples of mighty prayer you learn a bit about their prayer life and you start walking in something of what you see in them or people who are sort of strong in faith for achieving things for God or whatever. I remember in our old church in, in Winchester, there came a point in the 1990s where we'd had this building that we'd outgrown and uh, it was a labor of love just building that thing, a beautiful, stunning building, but it was on the outside of town. And so they'd had, the leaders had their eyes on this building right in the center of town. It was an art deco cinema, which had become a bingo hall. It was very run down. And it was basically just this massive cavernous thing that needed some love and attention. But it was going to cost. In fact, it was going to cost 850,000 pounds to buy it. And this is 1997. So, you know, with inflation and whatnot, it's a little bit more now. And this was a church of just over 300 people. So... I don't know, you can do the sum, some of you in your head, how much is that cash per head per person? It's a lot of money. We're talking thousands of pounds. And so they went about thinking, well, how are we going to raise this kind of money so that we can have this building, so that we can reach this city, so we can share the gospel with more people and have a public presence and grow as a church? And uh, my dad, who's here, started preaching into the whole theme and giving vision and calling people to have faith in their finances to give. We took... A day, an offering day, or I don't know what the expectation was that day, but they had two meetings that day where they took offerings. And then at the end of the evening service, the count came in, how much money had been raised. And the number came in just over 850,000 pounds. And when 
that church in Winchester did, managed to do that. It was like a bunch of churches just, well, firstly, they got dad in to come and preach on giving. And then, <laughs> and then they, uh, they started like, raising finances for new buildings because a lot of churches like ours, they didn't have buildings. You know, we're renting a space here. Maybe what God will provide for us in that way one day. Amen. Amen. Preach it, yeah. So what I'm trying to say to you is that stories of faith, and pretty much this is what the Bible is, stories of faith show us what faith looks like in all the various circumstances of life. So that's why we're going to be thinking about faith for a few months. The anatomy of faith, what it looks like in day-to-day life. As an individual, your, your growth in maturity or in power in the Christian life is basically equivalent to your growth in faith, your ability to trust God. They're one and the same thing. There's no distinction. So your deepest struggles in the Christian life are to do with whether you believe and trust God in that area. Your highest achievements in the Christian life are to do with your ability to trust God. And maybe you're not a Christian here at all. You know, the whole thing tilts on, pivots on the question, do you really trust him? Do you trust what he says about himself? Do you trust what he did in sending Jesus for you? Do you trust that that's enough for you? It's all about your faith. You see how central this issue is, how vitally important it is. As a church, I want us, you know, I want, I want it for all, I, I don't know what you guys are going to do with your lives, but so many of you, you know, I just think if you, if you can, if you can, if I can impart something through teaching this series that will make a difference in your future, then God's going to be glorified through that. It'll make a difference for you as individuals. But I also have dreams. The leadership share dreams that for what we hope this church will be and do in this city. city of many millions of people, and we're a tiny speck in the heart of the city. But Jesus said that the kingdom of God is like leaven. That's, you, know, you put a tiny bit of leaven into a batch of dough, and then it just starts multiplying, multiplying, and leavens the whole batch. He said it's like a mustard seed. You just put the tiny seed in the garden, and it grows into the biggest, the biggest tree in the garden. And so I, my, my hope, my conviction, my desire, my prayer is that we are going to have, we're going to punch above our weight in terms of what God's going to do through us in this city. And that we're going to be able to plant churches across the city that are going to impact many thousands of lives. And that maybe we'll send people abroad to do the same thing. We'll impact business and government and all kinds of levels of society, even just your neighborhood. Precious people who need to know about Jesus. So for all these things, we need to grow in our faith. We need to be stretched in our faith, don't we? That we'll be more prayerful, we'll be more trusting, that we'll be more obedient to God, that we'll basically want to do what he says and live as though he's real. I think that's the great thing, isn't it, for Christians, to live as though God is real and what he says is true. We know he is, but we don't always live as though that's the case. Now, coming down with our heads to this passage, just focusing in on what, what this guy's doing here. We don't know who wrote the letter, so we'll just call him the writer, the author. What's going on here? The whole letter is written for these Christians who are struggling in their faith. They're not in a great place. Maybe that's you, the position you're in. Maybe, as I said, you're not a Christian at all. And For you, you've not been persuaded yet to make that sort of leap. Jesus said about what it means to become his disciple. He said, you better figure out how much it's going to cost before you make that decision. He said, if a guy's going to build a tower, he's going to figure out how much money he has and how many resources he has before he goes about building the thing. Because if he starts and then runs out, it's going to be a bit embarrassing, isn't it? And he said the same thing when he challenged people to be his disciples. He says, you need to 
you need to understand what it costs to follow me, and that is to do with your level of faith. Do you really trust him? Are you willing to go all in? In the way the picture that we were hearing earlier, the gold brooch, Oscar Schindler's gold brooch, are you willing to give everything up to follow Jesus? Trust that actually you'll work out better in the end for you. That's the trade-off, isn't it? Or are you going to hold back? Which is what so many people do when they decide they're not going to follow Jesus. They, they look at him, they find maybe he's compelling in some ways, they admire him, they love the idea of being a Christian, they love the image of the Christian life, but somehow there's some part of your life you don't want to hand over. It's like the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and says, you know, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus just boiled it down to the, the thing that he couldn't give up. He said, you need to give away all you have and follow me. And because that was his idol, his passion, his love, his possessions, he couldn't do it. That was the thing he couldn't trust God with. And so he turned away from Jesus. Now, it may not be money for you, but there's, there's probably something that stops you. If you are a Christian, most of us are, if you are a Christian, you might feel weak in your faith, struggling like the, the, the people who this letter was written to. Maybe you're ashamed because of the weakness of your Christian life. Maybe you're embarrassed about you know, the state of your heart. Maybe you find shame. You feel when you come to church, you feel, I don't compare to any of these people around me. Maybe you're, you, know, you feel like you're caught in patterns that aren't helpful. It could be a chronic thing that's been bubbling on under the surface for years. You never really have felt like your faith has been propelled forward, energized, alive. Or maybe it's just a season that you're going through right now. Unusual time of testing. You feel very vulnerable. Christians always go through these seasons. It's not unique to you. That's the kind of thing this letter is written to that situation. What does he do? He tells us, just in this paragraph that we're looking at, he tells us to draw near, to hold fast, and to stir up one another. And I want us to think about those three things in turn. Beginning with these early verses, he tells us to draw near. Look at how he puts it. He says, Therefore, brother, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great Priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now here's what he's saying. The expectation is that the normal experience for a Christian should be one of enjoying God's pleasure in your life. The normal Christian life should be a life lived under the sunshine of God's favor and grace. Feeling the joy of his love for you. Experiencing the peace that comes from that. Walking with him. Aware of his, his tenderness and kindness. And nothing between you and him. That should be the normal Christian experience. And I, I want to say again to those of you who are not Christians. That might be the very thing that you're craving. To know what it is to have total acceptance by the God who made you. To know what it is to have your conscience entirely clean, wiped clean. To know total peace, even in the storms of life. That's the thing I think every heart craves. But very often, I think even Christians are nowhere near that in the reality of their day-to-day lived experience of, of walking with God. I mean that... You know, when he says here, 
let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. That's what your faith should look like, full assurance. But your, your faith is a little bit more like limp, weak doubt. And you know it about yourself, and you feel frustrated. You're not, if, effectively what he's saying is this, that if, if we're meant to be Christians, we have full assurance when we come to God, the reality of your experience is that you're not enjoying what's yours. What do I mean? Well, one of the most powerful films you'll ever see, if you haven't seen it, you have to go and watch it, is the film Shawshank Redemption. There's a man, a character in that film called Brooks Hatlin, who is the oldest guy, the oldest character in the film, the oldest man in the prison. And he's friends with Andy, the main character, and Brooks is the librarian. He's gentle. He obviously committed some terrible crime as a young man, but He's been locked up for years and he seems to have been a broken man. His character has been softened. And he's, 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 everyone loves him. He doesn't have any enemies in the prison. And eventually, late into his life, he comes around for his review before the prison wardens and they grant him his freedom. And Brooks leaves the prison with his jacket, his hat, a little case of all the possessions he has in the world, and goes to stay in the kind of halfway house, the room that they provide for guys on their first night out of prison, with the names of other prisoners carved into the wood. That night, he hangs himself in the room. Because while the reality is he's free, he's so institutionalized that he can't walk in the freedom that's now his. And actually, unfortunately, many Christians live under that sense their whole lives sometimes. That while the Bible says about you, you're loved, God delights in you, he treasures you, his love for you could not be proved more clearly than in the death of his son. He gave all for you, as we're hearing. Your sense is that God is displeased with you, that God is your enemy, that you hesitate to come to him, that you feel ashamed of yourself all the time. So while on paper you could say, you're a free person, that's what it means to be a Christian. He whom the sun sets free is free indeed. Nevertheless, you feel like a prisoner in your heart. And that's not unusual. So many Christians feel like that. What's going on? What is the problem? And I think it's this. The problem is that you still think it's about you. The problem is that in your heart, you're still a legalist. A legalist is someone who thinks that they have to keep laws to please God. And there are two types of legalists. There's the legalist who becomes puffed up in their pride, like the Pharisees, because they think they're wonderful. They think they're something. And they, their chest is bloated out and they feel cocky and arrogant. And then there's the legalist who feels like they go through life groveling in the dust because while they know the standard's there, their life is there. And they think, I'm a massive disappointment to myself, never mind to God. That's what's going on. You think it's still about you. And the letter to the Hebrews tells us, and he brings it, to some very neat little explanations here. He tells us, friends, 
your rights as a child of God. He says, doesn't he say here, since we have confidence to enter the holy places. The holy places, of course, meaning that you can come to God into his very throne room in a spiritual sense without fear of rejection or anything. He says confidence, that your demeanor in coming to God should be one of confidence. I am accepted. I am a child of God. He says full assurance of faith. Now, it sounds a little bit like the way I was describing the Pharisees, doesn't it? Like chest puffed out, cocky, arrogant. And that would be true if you thought that you were confident because of who you are. But then he tells us the reason we're confident. And he gives us a few clues here. He says we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. He tells us in the previous chapter that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. People all around the world have intuitively recognized the need for atonement for the wrong things we've done. That the sins you've committed need something to cover them. It's what the word atonement means. And that blood is the only thing that can do that job. Now if you're trying to atone for yourself through the bitterness of spirit, the grief of of your repentance, or through feeling rubbish about yourself, then your life is doomed to lack of joy and lack of experience of the grace of God. But what he says here is that we enter by the blood of Jesus, which is to say the most powerful substance in the universe is covering your sin. If I can put it very clearly, I'd say it like this. The blood is greater than whatever you've done. There's a hymn that says, There is a fountain filled with blood, flows from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath the flood wash all their guilty stains. This is Christianity, friends. It's not a message for the person who thinks that their life is pretty much sewn up and you've got it together. Jesus said he came for the sick. He said the only way in is through brokenness of spirit. When you realize, I don't have it. I don't have anything to offer to God. I need the blood to wash me clean. This is why you can be confident because nothing you do in life can cancel out the power of that blood. You enter by the blood of Jesus. And he goes on, he says, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that's through his flesh. There was a curtain that guarded the Holy of Holies so that no one could come into the presence of God in the old temple system before Jesus eradicated all of that. In fact, when he died on the cross, that very curtain that was in the actual temple in Jerusalem was torn from top to bottom as though God, with his very hands, was ripping it asunder. And he tells us here, the curtain is the flesh of Christ ripped open for you that you can go enter into God's presence. And then he says, and we have a great high priest over the house of God. So Jesus isn't only the sacrifice who pours out his blood, whose body is ripped open for you. He's also the priest. I love this this truth about Jesus. It's one that he keeps telling us through the book of Hebrews. It means something like this. It means that When you come to God, you might feel like the guest at the party who's dressed wrong. You ever been to a wedding, you suddenly realize everyone else has a tie on except you, 
or a funeral and you realize that your Bermuda shirt wasn't quite fitting the mood of that particular funeral. They told you it was a celebration of life and you're like, no, everyone's dressed somber except me, I look like a Wally. You ever been in that place where you just feel like totally inappropriately dressed? I think a lot of people feel like that in their relationship with God. Like they come to God and they just feel like, I can't even, I can't even ask you for anything because there's no way you'd even look upon me. Now, the picture of the throne room of God here is that actually God's eyes aren't so much upon you in that sense. They're on Jesus. And Jesus is there as your priest. And his job is to intercede for you, to make an argument in your defense, to say something like, this person's covered by the blood that we've just been talking about. There's nothing that you can hold against that person. The book of Hebrews tells us things about Jesus as our priest. It tells us that he's the priest forever. His priesthood will never come to an end. It tells us that he is sympathetic to you. Because he himself lived on earth and experienced temptations like you and I experience, he understands that you're flesh, that you're weak. And so whatever your failings are, he looks upon you with tenderness and care. And he he picks you up and, and carries you into the throne room as your priest and says, it doesn't matter that you're weak, I'm going to make the case before the Father. It's not as though the Father has to be persuaded because the Father actually sent Jesus for that very purpose. He's on your side. But you still need this high priest to argue your case, to make it plain that you are totally acceptable in there, Bermuda shirt or not. It doesn't matter how you come in. Friends, if you're struggling in your faith, not enjoying what it means to be a Christian. Simple call here is draw near. There's nothing else you have to do to sort yourself out. Yeah, you may need to walk away from that sin. You do, of course we do. But the first thing you do is draw near. You ever noticed in the Lord's Prayer, it says, our Father who's in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then eventually he gets to, oh, forgive us our sins. Now, we tend to think as Christians, that needs to be the first thing we do when we come to God in prayer. God, I'm so ashamed of myself. And then eventually we can be like, God, can I maybe ask you for something? And Jesus Jesus puts it the other way around. He says, no, you come in confidently. You say, God, we're going to pray for your kingdom. We're going to pray for your work in the earth. We're going to pray for myself, my family, all that stuff. And then eventually, oh, Lord, you know, I've sinned. Forgive me. But he doesn't make your relationship with him conditional upon you always feeling like you have to grovel into his presence. Why? Because you have a great high priest in the throne room making the way open for you. There's nothing to stop you. Draw near, he says. There's a second thing he tells us in this passage. He tells us hold fast. Draw near and hold fast. He goes on. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Now remember, again, he's speaking here to Christians who are struggling. Not the Christians who are mighty in faith. And, you know, I've met some of those. Good for them. (laughs) He's talking to the rest of us who are struggling. And even those who are maybe on the brink, tempted even to give up. Why do we sometimes find that we want to give up? Let me give you a few reasons. Maybe something will resonate with you. One of them is just doubt. It can be heart level, sort of intellectual, whatever, doubt. One of the things you know, notice when you read the biographies of great Christians through history is that there's barely a one of them that hasn't struggled. 
with seasons of intense doubt. Doubts that shook them to the core of their being. You know, is everything I'm doing in life going to amount to anything? Is God even there? I only say that to you because I think some Christians think that having doubts makes them unworthy in itself. And I don't think that's the case. I think it's, yeah, sure, doubt is something to work through and it's not a place you want to sit in for long. But you mustn't ever walk away just because you have doubt. Sadly, many Christians do. Another thing that that causes Christians to turn away is disappointment, maybe suffering. And the disappointment that comes through suffering, when you begin to reason out and you think, is it really worth it? You know, the Christian life is calling for all this sacrifice, saying no to all this stuff, for a reward in heaven that I may never even be able to imagine, never mind get my hands on. And so you begin to think, well, if I've had to give up so much, what have I given up for? My life is struggling right now. I'm going through a season where I feel like God's abandoned me. Like, look at the pain I'm going through. Look at the things that are happening to me. Look at the disappointments I'm wrestling with. And so people are, often walk away at that point. Another reason that people walk away is because of laziness. You know, to put it really bluntly, you just take the course of least resistance like a river winding its way downhill. And somehow, keeping faithful, walking with God, just seems like the hard thing to do. The easier thing is just to kind of drift. And so the natural course of your life as you drift is always away from God. And for others, this, this desire maybe to turn away can come through intense seasons or prolonged seasons sometimes of temptation, burning desires for that which you know is, is wrong or displeasing to God in your life. And the trade-off just doesn't seem worthwhile because the fruit just looks so sweet. Doesn't it look delicious? You you can just try that and you'll be like God. Self-governed, autonomous. That's what the serpent told Adam and Eve, or told Eve. All Christians go through these seasons where they have to make those decisions. And for some... They trip into the thing that's tempting them. It just seems too alluring, too powerful in its drawer. And what does he say here to those of you who are wrestling with whether you carry on even? He says, hold fast the confession." I think the picture's a little bit like those old scenes of battles when they used to see, you know, army lined up against army. And on each side, there'd be a a man carrying a standard, the flag that represents their side. And as they went to war, the, the soldiers on each side, they mustn't let their flag fall. Some guys die with their hands practically in rigor mortis around the pole of the standard. And he said, that's what the Christian life is like. You, you recognize what you believe to be true and you, 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 you state your claim in that. You say, I'm not letting go of this. This is what it means to hold fast the confession. No matter what comes, this is what I know to be true. Even in my seasons of darkest doubt, even in my seasons of temptation, whatever I'm feeling. There's an amazing story of, of Martin Luther. So Martin Luther, Catholic monk, 
who was tormented in his conscience because the truth, as, he, as he'd learned it from the Catholic Church at the time in the 1500s, was that you have to grovel your way to God. He tried it all. He'd, he'd gone to St. Peter's Basilica in Rome and prayed up every step and his conscience was never alleviated until God opened his eyes when he read the Bible and realized these words, the just shall live by faith. That what it means to be a Christian is to trust God for your righteousness, for your forgiveness, not to earn it. And that, that simple message just turned Europe upside down. It literally transformed the continent. But when he st- first started propagating what he discovered just through reading the Bible again, because sadly not many people were doing that, people challenged him. They wanted to excommunicate him from the Catholic Church. And he was called up before councils. And on one occasion, he stood before the Diet of Worms. Strange name, spelt Diet diet of Worms. I have no idea who came up with that. But he stood there, and they told him, you must recant. They piled up his books and his tracts and all the writings that were going around Europe and said, do you recant of all this? And I think he took a night to sleep on it. He thought, "Hmm, maybe I should give this some thought before I give my answer. Wrestled in prayer. Looked into his heart, his conscience. Figured out whether there's any way he could wriggle out from this because really his very life would be in danger were he to continue along the path that he would, was on. And the next day when he's called up before them, the council, he gave his answer, which is longer than what I'm about to read you, but this is how it's been summarized. He says, my conscience is captive to the word of God. Thus, I cannot and will not recant. Here I stand, I can do no other So help me, God. I want you to understand the dynamics a little bit more of faith here. What faith feels like and looks like in your life. When you're struggling, when you're in the darkest seasons. Because on the one hand, we recognize that faith is a gift from God. We're told that a number of occasions in the New Testament. That God gives faith. He gives you the ability to see the truth. And he gives you the, the, the gift of faith, the ability to trust him. But once you've got faith, he also then says you've got to put it to work. And that's what this is telling us here. Hold fast to confession means that you've got some faith. You have a belief in God, but you need to work it like a muscle. Live as though it's true and your faith will grow in strength. And just in case, listen, what I'm calling for here is really there's a kind of a grit at the heart of Christianity you know, gritty determination. Some people are more naturally gritty people. Others of us are more naturally just sort of bend with the, we- the, w- the wind and the waves and we just sort of drift along. And, and the Bible calls for gritty determination to believe in him because sometimes there are moments of very, very difficult decisions in life. And that's what he's saying here. Hold fast the confession. But just in case you think that this is all about you and how determined you can be. He then just quickly reminds you, for he who promised is faithful. Which is to say, the reason that you're a Christian in the first place is not because you were smarter than other people to see the truth about this. It's because God got hold of you. And when he gets hold of you, he never lets go. In John 6, when Jesus is talking about this, he says, This is the will of him, the Father, who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me. And he means people. 
but raise it up on the last day. He means every person that the, the Father's given to me to be part of my inheritance, my kingdom, my church, my body, I will keep hold of them. He says, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. That's how you get saved. And then he says, and I'll raise him up on the last day. He's saying that once you come to know Jesus in truth and you are, your, your life is saved through faith, there is nothing that can take you out of his hands. He will never let you go. So yes, on the one hand, I want to say to you, hold fast to the confession. Don't give up. Don't waver. Don't let your faith weaken. But he says, the reason why you can do that is because he who promised is faithful. Which means that the most weak personality can walk with God in mighty faith because it's God who is faithful. It's a comfort to those of us who feel that we are not strong people. That we don't have the grit and determination of people around us who we admire so much. He who promises faithful. Lay hold of him. Draw near, hold fast, last of all. Stir up. He says in these last couple of verses, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. When you are struggling in your faith, what's your first reaction? Some of you run to church and to community and to brothers and sisters in Christ who will help you. And that's great. I think that's what we're meant to do. Some of you do the very opposite. You run away. Hide. Maybe because of shame. Maybe because you just think you've got to figure your stuff out. Maybe it's because of just the sheer effort of faking it when you come to church because you're, not, you're too embarrassed to open up about what you're really going through. So you, you have to fake it. And the effort of faking it makes you feel like there's no point coming. Maybe it's just the effort of doing relationships when all you can think about is your internal struggle. Maybe it's disillusionment that you've come to church and you feel like people have let you down or disappointed you or discouraged you or knocked you down when you were already in the gutter. What's your first reaction when your faith is struggling? I think what this, what this passage shows us, and of course the whole of the New Testament shows us, is that there is no way you can carry on in the Christian life in isolation. There's no such thing as a, as a lone Christian. You're always saved into the community of, of the kingdom, the church, the family of God. We're so individualistic in our mindset, the way we think today. I think it, we don't grasp this intuitively. We think spiritual, spirituality is a very personal thing. But actually, that's a, a weirdly modern way of thinking. Through history, it's always been a communal thing. You share your faith with others and you encourage one another. You walk side by side. There's an African proverb which um, PJ Smythe, who leads the advanced network of churches that we're part of, he loves to quote this one. He says, if you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go together. The implication is that you can go fast for a little while and then you'll crumble and fall. You won't make it if you go alone. But if you want to go far, you go together. And I guess the simple point here that's what Arna was laying on thick last week, is that you, you need the church. You need help from other people who believe the same things you do. Because everything we believe is so powerfully and starkly countercultural. you're not going to get much help from anywhere else, are you? 
That's why he says things like this here. He says, let us consider how to stir one another up. I love that image. You know, I love playing with fire. Not in the arsonistic weird sense, like, but in the sense of like, it's just fascinating, isn't it? And you notice when you stir up a fire, you let the oxygen in, the whole thing starts to just burn more vividly and brightly. And that's kind of what he's saying. You need to sometimes have like a poker in one another's heart. What's going on? Why is there all this rubbish and ash built up in, 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 the, in the fire of your faith? Let me just help you out here. I'm going to stir you up. I'm going to remind you of what's true. I'm going to tell you a little bit about why you need to put that behind you. I'm going to help you focus on what's important, and we're going to have more faith in God. I'm going to encourage you in your prayer life. I'm going to encourage you in your giving. Stir one another up, he says. And then he puts it in other ways. He's encouraging each other. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Brothers and sisters, the, the reason you are here in this room, and often in people's homes during the week, rather than just doing what we call quiet time, it's such a stupid way of describing your prayer time, but anyway, quiet time with God, you know, where you, you, you get in your room alone, and that's wonderful, you mustn't ever neglect that, but the reason why you're here today and not doing that on your own, or listening to some preacher online, or, or watching, you know, the new thing of like internet TV, uh, internet church, which is basically the same as like internet sex, it's like disembodied experience that just has nothing to do with what the New Testament says about church. The reason why you're here is because you need the person sat next to you, and they need you. We need to take responsibility for one another in doing the stirring up, the encouraging. Just think, just pause and think about that. There's someone sat next to you who needs you. Did you come with that mentality? Did you come to church thinking, I'm here to bless other people? Or did you come, as Anna was describing last week, with that consumeristic mode? What am I going to get out of it today? He says we need to stir one another up, encourage one another. And I know so often we can feel disappointed in church life and in what we get out of it and what other people, the relationships we have around us. But there's no point, I don't think, complaining the church doesn't do this, the church doesn't do that. Because always the responsibility is going to come back on you. What are you doing? Friends, we live face-to-face to to love and encourage one another in our faith. Let me just give you a few practical things before I close to help you think about how you can do this. Maybe you can find some prayer partners. Maybe you've been struggling in prayer for a long time. Well, nothing can be more encouraging to that than to find someone who you know prays more than you do or better than you do, with more faith than you do, and say, can we pray together, let's say like once a week? You just keep it like an appointment, like a metronome every week. Pray, 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 pray. Maybe you need to open the Bible with someone. You've been struggling to find how to feed your soul. And you know that this brother or this sister is better at it than you are. They, they know how to read the Bible. Maybe you need to just approach someone. Or maybe it's the other way around. you looking at someone near you and thinking, I know that person loves Jesus, but I'm pretty sure that their, their faith is like wobbly. And I can help them. I can help them learn how to read the the scriptures. I can help them learn how to pray. Maybe you just need to commit to your life group. You've not been going very often. 
And there's just something so powerful about saying, no, this is the one thing in my diary that never moves. Also Sunday morning church, but you know. <laughs> Wednesday night, Tuesday night life group. Maybe you need to open up to someone you trust about specific struggles you're going with. Get their counsel, their wisdom, their advice. Experience the healing power of confession with sin that you're struggling with. Or maybe it's just all the other way around. You, you just need to be that helper to someone else. Friends, all of this stuff is underlined by what he says in this last line. He says, all the more as you see the day drawing near. We need to all the more draw near to God. We need to all the more hold fast. We need to all the more stir one another up because the day is drawing near. You see how in our version it's capitalized, the day. He means the day when everything's just going to come to an end because surely this world's not going to last forever. There is an end in sight. Jesus promised an end in sight. And that's a double-sided thing. On the one hand, it means, friend, you don't have forever. Life is short. Make wise choices. Better you, you, you live a full tilt, a life full of faith. Get your brooch off your chest. Throw it in. Just go all in. Life is short. Make wise choices. But the flip side to it is this. We don't have to hang on indefinitely. There's nothing more deflating than feeling like you're hanging on for an end that's never in sight. And Jesus says, listen, it's a finite amount of time. You do have to exercise faith, but what is now by faith will one day be by sight. That's how the Bible puts it. That now we live by faith, but there'll come a time when faith is no longer needed because everything will be by sight. And the weakness you feel will be gone. A time will come when you'll see Jesus face to face. And all that was once promise and hope and expectation will be reality right there and then. So it's worth it. It's worth hanging on. It's worth pressing in. It's worth going all in for the sake of Christ. Let me pray. And I hand back to Jeremy and the guys here. Father, we recognize and confess that we're really not strong people, Lord. But we take comfort in what your word says, that actually your power is made perfect in weakness. And there's something so freeing and delightful about being able to confess our weakness, our weakness in the face of temptation or our weakness in the face of courage or a weakness, Lord, in prayer, whatever. We come to you and we say, Lord, we need your help. We don't know how to live faith-filled lives unless you open our eyes and give us Faith that is heavenly, that is spiritual, that is powerful. And we ask, Lord God, that as a church even, we would have corporately the gift of faith to be able to bless one another in our personal walk with you, but also as a church to do mission more effectively in this city, to reach for things. Clear away the obstacles and the doubts that people are experiencing. Especially, Lord, for those here who have not come to know you, may they see it with clarity that you are worth it, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen, amen.